people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, who could, who, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Helikiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Machiah, Hashem, and Hashabanah, Zachram, and Mishnam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their face to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kaletai, Azariah, Josabed, Hanan, Peleliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the word of the law. Test. Okay, good. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much to our brother for the scripture reading. Okay, it's been a little bit, but it's always good to share in the word together. And so today's lesson, I kind of want to give a little bit of contextual history overall. We're going to look at contextual history from what we've just read, and we're going to relate it to the founding of our country and bring us to today. And the end of the lesson is really the most important part of the lesson. The rest is history and context that it'll lead us to where we ought to go. So what's going on here with our scripture reading? Well, the Israelites have just returned from captivity. And they are read the word of God, the whole word of God. This is the law of Moses. It's it's likely to not include all of the Psalms, but some are going to be present. And if you look at their reaction, what is their reaction? The reaction is one of sorrow. Why? Did they get it wrong? Why would the word of God cause sorrow? Well, you see... They didn't get much of the word of God when they were in captivity. They were deprived of it. And this is a new generation from when they go into captivity. And so as the first exiles return, and society is being rebuilt, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the holy man of God, or the scribe as we are told in scripture, but these people, they begin to weep. And it's because they're confronted with the reality of sin. You think of Moses on Mount Sinai, and the people, all they could see was thunder and lightning, and they could feel just this great, awesome presence. And we know it's God. And this lowly man, Moses, is up on the hilltop speaking to God. But what was their reaction? They could see that God was near. They could hear and feel that God was near. And they build a molten image, and they get in trouble for it. But these people, the Israelites, have just returned from exile. And so the religious people before God say, don't mourn. Instead, this is a joyous occasion. And so I wanted to take this reading together today and go on a little bit of a journey. We're going to look at some of the history of the United States from the concept of biblical literacy. In fact, all literacy in the United States starts with biblical literacy. It's kind of a unique thing in our history. We'll just make sure I have this correct. Do I aim up here? Of course, it doesn't want to go for me. (laughs) There we go. All right. 
So the question you might want to ask yourself is, what is literacy? And what does it mean to be literate? I guess the quote is too tiny. But the idea behind literacy is I want to explain it as follows. One can pos possess excellent literacy and even solid comprehension, but they can still miss the point. And that's what actually happened to the Israelites. They weren't really dumb people. They weren't ill-informed. But when the whole law of God was laid before them, they missed the point. They missed the point that they were brought out of captivity. They missed the point that their society was being rebuilt. What's going on in the background here? Nehemiah has been humiliated, and he's the governor or the leader of the people. The wall, construction of the wall, is underway. In fact, shortly thereafter, our reading today, in a few chapters, we're going to find they're going to dedicate the wall and have a celebration. They're going to restore the feasts that Moses had declared from God to remember God. And they're going to resume their life in Jerusalem and the surrounding villages. But again, what is literacy? Well, I went to the American Heritage Dictionary for my definitions, and... Oh, sorry, that's the scripture reading. Literacy is as follows. I'll just kind of go here. Literacy is as follows. It's the condition or quality of being literate, especially the ability to read and write. Now, what is literate? Literate is not just the ability to read and write. If a person is literate, that means they are knowledgeable or they are educated in some aspect of reading and writing, particularly in a field. So when we say biblical literacy, we simply mean the person that can read and write the Bible and understand what they read and write. If you have a good understanding, you will be okay. If you have a bad understanding, you have all of history. And so, simplistically, when we look at literacy as a whole, we can understand that as the people are more literate in the Word of God, times are great. It doesn't mean they won't have challenges. We always will have challenges. But when people deviate and they become illiterate with the Word of God, that's when the real trouble sets in. So literacy in the modern world. So what is the modern world? We can kind of throw an anchor out there and have it stick somewhere. But we want to take the perspective of what we call the modern world today simply as the point of everything immediately before our founding, our revolution, and fast forward all the way to today. So we're going to come from about 1600s to today. That seems like a long time, 400 years, and it is long, but in the modern world. Because most of the advancements in our history, wherever you see it in the world, they happened in a really short period of time overall. Think of it. You have the combustion engine. You have the steam engine. You have advanced sailing and, na and nautical um, understandings. You have aerospace, you have flight, anything you can think of. So we're going to take a look from about 1600 until today as a reference point. And in our country, America, the United States of America, we've been really fortunate and truly blessed. And that is because of biblical literacy. So I have for us some charts sort of showcasing the, the, the time frame of our country where we have literacy in America compared to the rest of the world, especially even Western Europe, developed Europe, right? So when you look at America, by the time we have the colonies in place, the 13 colonies, we're at least 70% literate. And so the other 30% are in the extreme rural areas or the underserved areas in terms of civilization. Not government services, don't mistake that, but in terms of where civilization is, at least 70% can read and write in America. And this is in a, about a 170 year span, but compare it to Britain, France. Look at Spain. Spain has a huge impact on our history, not the largest, but they have a huge impact on our history. And yet their people are barely, not even 10% literate. And the reason for that is simply the Word of God. Now you might say, well, Nick, I've studied history. 
A lot of literacy came to push people into factories, and it's true, it did. But they have to have a reference point to start with. Think of one of the greatest inventions in the modern era, the printing press. What was Gutenberg's purpose for the printing press? To print copies of the Bible. To take it from the old handwritten approach and mass produce it so people could read the Word of God. Now, we're not going to dissect his level of faith, but we can clearly see how this relates. The Bible is the reason the United States overall has such a massive advantage compared to the world. And now let's look at 100 years since then. The United States goes from 70 to 80 percent, so that's like four and five people, or eight and ten, however you want to look at it. And Western Europe begins to sort of catch up a little bit. Spain makes some big gains from eight to 30 percent. Britain gets a little closer, kind of a thing. But look at the world. The world is about 19 percent. They go from, nine, from 10 to 19 percent. Now, if you could guess where their literacy comes from, it comes largely from Britain and France, their influence, even the Dutch in terms of their trade. But notice this. In America and in Western Europe, Christianity is key. But what do you think of the rest of the world? They're not Christian. They're the Hindus and the pagans. They're the Muslims, even. And they don't have the Word of God. And so they are functionally illiterate when you think of it. Now, I'm not saying this to harp on them or make them feel bad. But you can see where a lot of our gains come from simply because we're literate. And so there's this concept called universal literacy. It's interesting because universal literacy is an ambitious effort to make people literate. And when you see the start of universal literacy, at least in the Western world, from the same time period, the 1600s to the 1800s, Europe actually enjoys a lot of its successes because of what happens in places like France, Britain, and America, and not so much where a lot of the religion centered in Europe. So what's going on in Europe at this time? You have two large camps of religion. You have essentially the Protestants, and you have the Catholics. The Catholics centered in Rome, the Protestants centered in Canterbury, England. And if you look at how the people receive the Word of God, if you look at how the people study at any level, whether it's for a job, whether it's for menial education, whether it's religious study or something, you can begin to see trends that show that the people that value the Bible and the core Word of God benefit better. They're more literate. They're more informed. They're better educated. And if they're better educated, there's better opportunity. Now, this is not a lesson to say, hey, we need to throw the Bibles in the classroom and just start teaching. The church needs to do a whole bunch of extra work. That's not the point of this sermon. The point of this sermon is to show that if you read and study the Word of God, you'll begin to understand other life problems. You'll begin to understand how to think and address life problems. You'll begin to understand and how to evaluate a situation and make an informed decision. You see, if you take Rome... They selectively kept the Word of God. It would be some member of the clergy that would read to the people. The people didn't have access to regularly printed media. Even after Gutenberg makes the printing press, the Roman authorities do not, when I say Roman, I mean the Vatican and the, and the Holy See, they do not allow the people access to the Word of God. It's all done through a controlled, top-down manner. But in America, it's different. And we're going to take a look at how it is different. So we've looked a little bit at the sense of what literacy is. Now let's apply it to how we get to where we are today and how it benefits everybody. If you're a literate society, you can begin to characterize yourself in a few ways. You have more freedom because you can think. There are pushes for cultural acceptance, and I'm not talking about accepting foreign cultures, but I'm talking about a society that homogeneously gets along, right? Uh, if anybody knows a little bit of history, take the Protestant and the Catholic divide in Ireland. 
There's no culture acceptance there. It's literally a terrible divide throughout history, and only recently has it been somewhat abridged. But even technology benefits from this. And when you think of how society moves, we've often talked together how society used to be. It used to largely be agrarian or agricultural, right? Farmers. In Europe at this time, they are largely farmers. In America, we have a lot of farms, but we're going to be the first to win out in industrialization. And I would submit to you that when you look at literacy and the push to get the Bible understood by the masses, you'll begin to see why we have an edge and why we are first. The transition from agriculture into rapid industrialization and various revolutions is interesting. America is helped because of the Bible, but not so much the rest of the world. The rest of the world plays catch-up, and I'm going to point out something really fine here before we move to the next point. When you learn in school today, you have two general philosophies of learning. You can freely and independently think and evaluate what's before you, or you can practice what is called rote memorization. Most people learn by the second manner, but it's not the most effective one. What is rote memorization? You learn to study the material you will need to produce or to secure some task. I'll give you an example. Let's say you go to a store and you buy an appliance you've never used before. You're not going to read the, the manual and learn from the manual and learn all the ins and outs about it. You're going to look at the manual and try and figure out just enough so you can use the appliance. That is rote memorization. And the way you can test this is when you go through your own Bible, when you go through your own Bible and you look at circumstances where it seems difficult to reconcile Scripture, for example, in Ephesians and in James, the concept of obedience, to show your work is alive, James chapter 2, right? To show your works is alive, it produces a live faith, that your obedience is proper, Rote memorization runs into the common problem we see in America. What am I trying to say? Faith only. Once saved, only saved. Those come about because of rote memorization. They've learned just enough to fit in and move along. But when you constantly evaluate the scriptures, you will see and understand that something like once saved, always saved, and faith alone is not possible. And that's the difference. And in America, we benefited from that for a very, very long time. So, the key takeaway from today's lesson overall as we push through, there has been a push for literacy in America, and that reason is simply Christianity. Have you ever tried to study literacy in the world? Take a look at it. You understand what cultures and what countries are literate, why they're illiterate. Try to figure out the factors that get them to be literate, and the factors that sort of deprive them of literacy. No matter where you turn, you can't escape religion. You can't escape Christianity. Because in America, we are literate because of a particular group of Protestants. We call them the Puritans. You might have heard of them. We're going to take a look a little bit at the 13 colonies here. But the Puritans, they had two key reasons as to why they wanted the people to be literate. One, religious study itself, studying the Word of God. And two, they needed better participation in town efforts. They needed better, better participation among people, informed citizens so they could understand and help make decisions that would affect local communities. And they used the Bible as the basis to drive that whole effort forward. And why the Puritans? I think perhaps only the Lord knows but when you think of what the Puritans had done and who they're doing it with, when you think of the founding of our country and you think of the 13 colonies, Massachusetts or New England, essentially, they're the largest force. They have the most amount of people, commerce, and trade. And they're situated perfectly in America. And they also have the largest territory when you put all of the colonies together in terms of where their influence is. And don't get me wrong, 13 colonies, we know it spreads all the way up 
this eastern seaboard. But they had made a concerted effort to put God first. Now again, I'm not making commentary as to, well, they were right and others were wrong, or we should follow their pattern. I'm pointing out that they are responsible for where we are today. So we're going to take a look here at the 13 colonies. So generally when you look at the 13 colonies, you have sort of four divisions. You have uh, the New England area in the far north, uh, because at that time Massachusetts actually owns Maine. Uh, You have uh, sort of the mid-Atlantic, you have the Chesapeake colonies, and then you have the south. This is not the same as the north and south from our Civil War. That shifts a little bit later. But in the concept of the 13 colonies, uh, that's apparent. And you will see that those who benefited the most from literacy were the ones who pursued God the most overall. When you compare the colonies, you will find that the colonies that strictly adhered as best as they could to biblical understanding, they fared the best. Then you will be able to compare them to the colonies who decided, well, we can have a pluralism in belief. In other words, no dominant belief structure. And we'll see how well they do. So what, what's going on in these colonies at this time? So we'll start with the most influential one. You have Massachusetts, which includes Maine, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And it is the Puritans, like I had said. They wanted their people to participate in civic duty. Now, if you've ever traveled to Boston, it's wonderful. And if you haven't, please try and go there. If you love America, you need to see the birth of America. The birth of America is not the first landing, because a lot of people will say, well, we want to look at Jamestown or something like that, or we want to look at Plymouth Rock, or we want to look here or here. You know, America, the first landing in America to have an established settlement is actually St. Augustine, Florida. And why did they go there? Of all places, why did they go there? Religious persecution. They were fleeing the Catholics who were threatening them with death unless they converted into Catholicism. And they settled in St. Augustine, Florida. But history sort of obscures that and they want to look at the fancy stuff. But if you really want to look at the birth of your country and the debates surrounding this great nation, you have to go to Boston. And when you go into Boston, when you go right downtown in the museum, they're all churches. All of the museums are churches. They would have worship together, and once worship was done, they would get up and debate the founding issues of the nation. It's really remarkable. Now, again, I'm not saying we need to turn the church into something. Far be it. But if you want to understand where you come from, by all means, go there. And what about the other colonies? Well, I mentioned you have the Chesapeake colonies. This is Maryland and Virginia. And I'm sorry that it's a little too small, but if you note here, remember I said that there was a pluralism? There's no state church, right? So that means you have a lot of denominations, different beliefs, and they react accordingly. Now, Maryland and Virginia, Virginia is a very rich state. They're rich because of the wealth that was there. But if you compare Virginia to, say, Massachusetts, or even, well, I don't know, maybe North Carolina, Virginia is sort of in the shadows. They're not doing a whole lot. And it's because of literacy. They're a little bit slower based on their model. We have now the South. Now the South is interesting because the South is a little bit spread out and disjointed. Of course you have Georgia, but outside of Georgia you have Florida. I mentioned St. Augustine, but you also have what would eventually become Louisiana. You have New Orleans. In New Orleans, there was a concerted push early on to have people literate. It was done by the Catholics. It's, in fact, I think it's the oldest standing school of its type. But they had pushed to at least teach people, to teach people how to read and understand. They would use the Bible as a basis to read, understand, so they could teach other concepts. And it would be done wonderfully if they didn't go to school to do it. At the same time, it would be perhaps brothers and sisters teaching each other, or parents and children. So the challenge, what is the challenge? Well, when you think of literacy, it's not like solving a city problem. Let's take a look at Wichita. 
one of the biggest issues facing Wichita, apart from the roads, is the water supply and what they will do to treat the water for generations to come. And there have been a lot of debates recently, we need a new water treatment facility. And quite simply, we do. But when it comes from literacy, that doesn't drive that issue today. That's a political issue today. But what do you think politics looked like a few hundred years ago? Very select people would be involved. And the desire to push people into better involvement had to come from some basic level of education. And let's tie it back to our scripture for an example. Remember, the people were mourning. They didn't understand. They knew they were guilty of sin before God, but they didn't understand what was going on. And it was Ezra and the Levites that had to not only explain it to them and break it down for them, but to help them realize the proper outcome that it was a joyous occasion. They have been released from captivity. They're returning to normalcy, if you will. And so the challenge is, when you look at an opportunity today, and if you're not literate at all, if you're illiterate, how are you going to handle that challenge if you were literate? Now, it doesn't mean you have to actually even know the subject of the challenge before you. I'll give you an example. Most of us are not uh, natural disaster experts, right? And if there was a great earthquake or a tornado that would run through here, we wouldn't know what to do, but some of the leaders could step forward because they have experience and they have literacy. Uh, let's flip it on the, the, the other perspective for a moment to kind of illustrate the point further. If you were illiterate, how would you react? It'd just be a mess, wouldn't it? You'd panic. It would just be pure emotion. But at least if you had some sort of literacy, you could say, hey, wait, you know, there's a whole bunch of rubble here and there's an exposed gas line. Well, you don't need a plumber or an HVAC tech to, to tell you that that's dangerous. You don't even need the city to tell you that it's dangerous. But if you're a little bit literate, then you're going to say, hey, there's some dangers here as we navigate through this challenge. And that's just a loose example, if you will. A nation generally of dumb people will suffer. Now, these are not quotes I've pulled anywhere online. This is just kind of putting it together. But think of it. Now, uh, dumb people, I don't mean that to insult their intelligence. But if you've ever wondered why America is in the position it is today, and compared to, say, oh, I don't know, the Congo in Africa, or perhaps... Uh, somewhere in Central America, like the Northern Triangle, for example, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. If you've ever wondered why America is in the position today, it's simply because of literacy and biblical literacy. And so literacy produces an opportunity for people to better communicate with each other. And I'll give you an example of this. We don't see it here in America because we've been fortunate. But if you look at studying core languages around the world, they have what they call a high dialect and a low dialect. Low dialect is common speech, like you and I are speaking today. High dialect, though, is someone who's not only educated, but could sometimes speak only the language of the kings. The closest thing I think we get in America is if somebody is a lawyer and they have to translate some aspect of law. But you go to Germany, for example, and I remember my stepfather sort of teaching this to me. Because I would complain, learning English, it was no fun, and I didn't like it. And he would say, look, I had the same problems you did. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, in Germany, they only speak one language. And he says, not quite. They have a very formal etiquette, and they have an informal etiquette. And the informal, almost anyone can speak. And so it made me think growing up, even with our own language here, Compare even American English to British English. There's quite a bit of difference there. It's not just a subtle difference, if you will. Words have grossly different meanings. Like, for example, if you point out, hey, do you need a lift? A lift in the United Kingdom means elevator. But here, a lift is, I'll take you somewhere. Right? So just some things to think on. But you only overcome those issues if you're functionally literate. And so I had mentioned earlier, the push for literacy in America has been remarkable. 
But you also have to remember where we also came from. America, we didn't start as serfs. Now, what is a serf? A serf is the lowest of the feudal class, right? We, don't, we call them landlords today if we rent, I rent, right? We have a landlord, but they don't have the same capacity as they did back then. A serf would do work in exchange for living rights on the property. But a lord of the land at the time could induce all sorts of challenges, a fee or a fife, legal requirements, military requirements. The lord of the land could say, you need to go and fight for this faction because we are serving this king now. We never had that in America. In fact, the United States government often will argue over something like conscription, but they cannot come into your house and come and say, you're going to fight this war. They can't. There is a lot of systems in place that have to be invoked before they can even have somebody eligible to go and do such a thing. But back then, they could target your home as long as they had some sort of deed or title, and they could invoke basically savage law and force you to fight for a cause you would have no idea or no understanding about. And they suffered for it. They suffered greatly for it. So, a growing list of problems. Where are we coming from and where are we going? When you look, I don't know why I did that. I, it must be because I didn't use PowerPoint. Um, a growing list of problems. When you consider the concept of illiteracy, you will run into all sorts of problems overall. The number one thing I would submit is priority. If you're functionally literate, you can begin to prioritize things a little bit better because you will understand the importance of something. If you're literate with something, you generally won't have a tendency to make an excuse or neglect something you must do. That's not a perfect science, but it's definitely close enough. But when you look at biblical literacy, as we sort of push into the point of the lesson today, a nation that is biblically illiterate will make excuses to never prioritize scripture. They might show up to church a couple times a year. We like to pick on certain groups that do that, but you begin to understand how the followers of certain traditions and faiths, if it's not a priority, you can begin to see how they suffer. And a lot of people will either ignore it or they'll just say they don't have enough time, they're simply too busy. Or whatever they do know in Scripture, they will come from a generalist aspect. They will talk about the birth and death of Jesus, but they will treat the birth and death as monumental moments within the calendar year. What do I mean by that? Christmas and Easter. But when you look in the Word of God, we do not find any mention of Christmas or Easter. Now, some clever fellow might say, well, Christmas simply means a mass of Christ. Well, if that's how you want to treat it, can you show me in Scripture where they celebrated a mass of Jesus during his birth? And they will try and twist a bit, and they'll say, well, the three kings came, but they're not kings, they're magi. You can kind of see where I'm going from there. They will use a generalist approach. And it is also how Christians get duped into believing all sorts of falsehoods. For example, this might not be politically correct, but if you look at the flag of Israel, they will say it's the Star of David. But when you look in the Old Testament, is there such thing as a Star of David? What about in the New Testament? The closest thing we can find to a star that's not in Revelation or not mentioned to Abraham happens to be the guiding star for our Lord Jesus. But Christians have been duped into believing that the Star of David is something that's found in Scripture. It's not. Look for it. You will never find it. And this is the problem with biblical illiteracy. People can be led any which way. What about shallow teachings? Low effort from preaching. I think the standard has to also be applied to those who stand before the masses and teach the Word of God. You can teach effectively, or you can teach shallowly, or you can not teach at all, but a low effort from, from preaching will produce low outcomes. Now, there's not quotas here, or anything of the sort, 
But if the teaching was shallow and never in depth, if the people truly are not fed the word of God, how will they benefit? How will they be edified? How will they know? How can they understand how to apply scripture elsewhere to help them when they encounter a challenge in the Bible? What about ineffective doctrine? This one is very common. We have to be careful with it. It's very easy to cherry-pick something or twist something so as to make it fit what you say. Uh, Oftentimes I will see this among Christians if they target certain people in the Bible. And I'll give you an example. They will target David or Solomon. David and Solomon are actually both written very favorably in your Bible. Solomon, we are given the full breadth of his life, all of his bad decisions. God didn't put it there for a model for us. I don't know why that changed. I didn't touch it. God didn't put that there for a model for us. It's not working. There we go. Sorry. God didn't put it for a model for us to follow. He put it there to warn us. But people will cherry-pick aspects of the lives of people that show up in Scripture and either condemn them or somehow walk them into heaven. But if you look at someone like Solomon himself, for all his wisdom, for all his good and for all his bad, you get to see his whole life. You get to see a young boy that comes before God offering insane amounts of sacrifices, and it sort of gets God's attention. And God says, what is it that you want? And he says, Lord, I neither know how to come or to go. Help me to lead your people. And God makes it so. He says, because you have not asked for wealth, I will add wealth to you. When you look at these two people, David and Solomon, they are responsible for perhaps the core of your Old Testament understanding and how to learn about God. And what do I mean by that? You can read the history of the kings and their wars. You can see the chronicled events of the efforts of the Israelites and their leadership. You can even look at the beginning and the law of Moses. But none of them truly show you how to be wise, and none of them truly show you how you ought to praise God. However, David and Solomon do. So people will use ineffective doctrine, sometimes without realizing it. They will either even add or take away to the Word of God. We've been warned several times in Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we shall not add nor take away. But people inadvertently do this when they have ineffective doctrine. What about popular belief? What is a popular belief? Sometimes popular belief is literally the spawn of the hive mind or the collective thinking of people. But popular belief for something has no solid basis in Scripture. And you might say to yourself, well, Nicholas, I know this. I would submit to you that as you look through your Scriptures, as you open your Bible and you go through it, you will find regularly statements from God that immediately dispel popular belief. And yet, popular belief doesn't go away. I wrote some other things here, false teachings, or neatly setting things aside. Those are particularly interesting. False is not necessarily a direct affront. It's sometimes easy to spot a bold-faced lie. But false teachings come about when something is slightly twisted. And I'll give you an example. Look at the Garden of Eden. Satan twists one word, and man falls. The whole concept of sin is unleashed, And we suffer for it even today. False teachings. Now, I'm going to take popular belief and false teachings and I'm going to kind of point it out together. A lot of people will try to say that it was an apple that they ate. But if you look in your scriptures, there is no description of the fruit other than it is forbidden and it is from the tree they're not to touch. But people will say it's an apple. They'll even come up with cultural references, the Adam's apple, right? In males, we have... The cultural reference, the Adam's apple, I don't know the medical term. But that comes about from popular belief in false teachings. And that stuff creeps in because it's easy to pick up. Oh, they ate an apple from the tree and they shouldn't have. The story is largely correct, but the detail of an apple is important. Why? It doesn't exist in Scripture. Why would you add it in? This ties in to literacy. 
Whoops. Sorry about this, folks. All right. I have some scripture readings for us here. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to take a look at two close eras, but they're different. We're going to take a look at the efforts of both Jeremiah and Hosea. And I want to read from God, pointing out the exact same problem that even exists in Nehemiah's time and including our own today. Just a moment here as I turn here. So Jeremiah chapter 5. And he did his prophecies from about 644 B.C. to 584, but we don't know how long he lived. We're just given a description of who's, in, who's ruling. Let's go to chapter 5. We're going to read through it, the whole thing together. Jeremiah declares an issue regarding Jerusalem's godlessness. Jeremiah declares Rome to and from through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek her in open squares. If you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, if there is one who does truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for the truth. You have smitten them, but they do not weaken. You have consumed them, but they have refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock, and they have refused to repent. And then I said, they are only the poor. They are even foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord or even the ordinance of their God. I will go to the great, and I will speak it to them. For they will know the way of the Lord, the very ordinance of their God. But they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the deserts shall destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn into pieces because of their transgressions, of which are many. Their apostasies are numerous. Why then should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they had instead committed adultery, and they had trooped the harlot's house. They were well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his own neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them, declares the Lord? And on a nation such as this shall I not avenge myself. Go up through her vine, rose, and destroy but do not execute complete destruction. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with, the, with me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord, and they have said, Not he, misfortune will not come upon us, and we will not see sword or famine. And the prophets are as wind, and the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. And before we continue... If you look very closely here, look at verse 12. We have the most powerful armed forces in the world. Does that guarantee us an outcome in war? If you look at our last examples of war in our history, going back to World War II, oh, I've knocked something over now. Sorry about that. If you look at our examples going back to World War II, you realize we haven't won a sustained conflict against anyone? a defined enemy. Sure, we've gone in and we've done policing and we've done exercises to help the so-called United Nations, but do you realize that World War II is our last defined victory in war? Have you thought about that? And I'm not saying this to harp on our forces. They, we have some members in our audience who give their lives and would be ready to give their life to serve us and our great nation. But when you look at the people who trust the armed forces of the United States, thinking we're invincible, is that really the outlook we should have? Look at how they did back then. We can see numerous examples in the Old Testament where the Jews disobey God, and they go out militarily, and they get whooped. The same concept is here. Again, it's not to slam our troops but to put our trust in things like chariots over that of God, the consequences can be very bad. So let's continue, verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you've spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. 
Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand even what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are mighty men, and they will devour your harvest, your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters, your flocks, your herds, your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. Yet even in these days, declares the Lord, I will not make you completely destroyed. And it shall come about when they say, Why has the Lord our God done all of these things to us? Then you shall say to them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve strangers in a land that is not even yours. Declare this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying the following, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not even fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside, and they have departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people, They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap and they catch men, like a cage full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They are fat, yet they are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, and they may prosper from it. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule in their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the very end of it all? When you look at Jeremiah's condemnation of Jerusalem and their godlessness, If you look closely, can you not see America? Think about it for a moment. What is in the background here while God is extremely livid with his people? You have a small remnant that are faithful. And then you have every other imaginable influence possible, and all of them are not good. You have the religious leaders turning their back. You have the people that desire each other's spouses. You have people robbing and oppressing the poor, neglecting the widows. You name it. And God says calamity will come. And boy, does it ever come. Jeremiah's heart breaks because he has to not only foretell of this, but he also has to go through it. Could you imagine that? We, we think this doesn't happen in America, but... I would submit to you, if you take a step back, you can see how God acts. You can see how he's always been, and you can see exactly what he will do today. You can even see it if you look closely. We always look for the end or the outcome of something. Jeremiah is giving this as it is about to happen, and he will go through it. That has to break anyone's heart. But what about literacy? They had the same scriptures. They knew the words, but they refused to dig into them. The Lord even tells them, look, this is the one who gives you rain, but you don't turn back to him. Isn't it the same today? Rain back then is the same thing today. If we like the weather we have, sometimes we might grumble. I'm guilty of it. I'm not saying it's right. But if we like the rain we have, it's the same one that gives us the heat and the drought. Now, ask yourself, For however long we've been in a drought season here in Kansas, do you not think it's because something the country has done overall? I can't tell you the exact iniquity. I will never stand here before you to say it. But if you give God a chance to show himself and how he operates, 
you can begin to understand and appreciate better what is around you. And that is the purpose of biblical literacy. God says his people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. What do you think that knowledge is? It's not the do or the do not, even though that's part of it. It's understanding God completely. A lot of people will say, Jesus this and our Lord that, and they are true. But they said the same thing for Moses, and when they focused so much on Moses, what did they do? They put everything aside from God. If we say Jesus is our Lord, do we not do what he expects of us? How often do we put things aside from Jesus? I'll give you an example of church discipline. I'm not going to insert myself into a problem, but look at church discipline as a whole. Jesus tells you how you have to handle church discipline. And if it's a problem with one member in the audience with another, you don't run to the preacher. You don't even run to the elders. Jesus says, go to your brother. The one who has wronged you, he says, go and make it right with him so you can be joyous together. So that mercy can occur, that grace abounds, and together you can serve God. But what will people do? Do we not find a proxy for our problems? If someone has written a nasty letter towards us, do we not go and confide to the closest person to us or the person we think trusts the most? That's a common thing, but Jesus tells you how to handle it. If I were to write you something offensive, you ought to come to me so we can reconcile it and get along and be harmonious and united together. But if I were to write this letter and somebody comes along and says, oh man, that Nicholas guy is a tough guy. Not only did Nicholas make the mistake, but you're going to make a mistake too. All on the basis of biblical literacy. Think of it this way. When you look at what our Lord has asked us to do, is any of it really difficult? The pattern is very simple. Jesus tells us his burden is light for us for his own sake because he wants to save us all. But we will make things difficult when we get away from that. And Jeremiah and Hosea point this out very clearly, but it's all over. When you look in the Old Testament, it is all over. And just because it happened 15, 1,600 years ago, even 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, doesn't matter the timeline. It is still as true as it was then as it is today, and vice versa. So, biblical literacy. I have a small litmus test for us all to consider. And this is done to sort of stress the basics because you can only do complex things when you understand the basics. How many Americans can name all four Gospels and their intended audiences? We should be able to do it. We just did it recently. Kyle had helped us kind of understand that. He had a great lesson that he worked with our friend Sean to have us understand These basics will help you later. How many can discern the specific and general epistles, even those of the preacher letters? Again, these are all so we can think, not to put you on the spot and make you feel bad. But how many can identify more than two or three of the disciples? Can you name all 13 disciples? You might say, Nick, there's 12. Sure, but one was replaced. What about more than just five of the Ten Commandments? Or better yet, what is the first commandment that has a promise? And here's the final one to kind of consider for us all. And this one, I think, affects everyone almost the same. How many people can place their faith in the very one that sold them the faith to begin with? You might say, well, what do you mean by that? I didn't buy the Word of God. I'm talking about the person who brought them to Jesus. That person generally has a special place in a believer's heart. And I think it's a good thing in a way, because they're fond of the one that reached out the arm to rescue them. But how many people can place their faith in the very one that rescued them? Uh, children with their parents, right? At some point, children will grow up, and they have to have their own faith. If you're eight years old, it's different than when you're 18 years old. You see, we don't baptize eight-year-olds, and if we do, we shouldn't. I'm not saying we do, but, but we will baptize an 18-year-old because they're accountable. But when you're accountable, it means your faith is that of your own. 
You no longer can live off the coattails of mom and dad. Just something to consider. And so we have a solution overall, and we have an effective cure. So what can we do overall as Christians? First and foremost, you yourself, because you're in control of you and yourself, you can devote yourself to the cause of God. You can devote yourself to studying the Word of God and obeying Jesus. And only then can you help people. If you've ever been on an aircraft, what did they tell you during the safety demo at the beginning of a flight? Put your mask on first, then you can help other people. But our tendency with our heart, because we want to care, is to try and help somebody else, especially if we think they're weaker than us. Maybe they're more capable, we just misread them our whole lives. But you must be able to help yourself before you can truly help another person. Now, help yourself doesn't mean figure out all of things in Scripture before you can then move on. But if you're going to help somebody with a key aspect of their faith, whatever it is, make sure you understand it first. Jesus does have a saying, the blind leading the blind. The Pharisees didn't help themselves correctly, and they led a lot of blind people astray. And the number two thing what we can do, parents and children, there's an interesting dynamic there. When I mentioned biblical literacy with the Puritans, they were wonderful because they would have family study time together. If it wasn't in the household directly, they would send them to a friend of the church to help with it. And who were they sending? They were sending the children as soon as they were old enough to read. But this isn't a new thing. I mentioned biblical literacy. Let's look at the Old Testament. How do you think the males learned the Word of God? When the boys were old enough for basic understanding, they would be put in the temple and they would read and recite the law nonstop. And they would be taught the teachings of Moses. And so parents can teach and children can learn. And once the children understand, what do you think is the next step? The children can help their siblings. That's exactly what we see in scriptures. Let's put it this way. You don't find this directly in scripture, but you can see sort of coattails of it, if you will. When Jesus was old enough to speak in the temple, how old was he? He was about 11 years old, wasn't he? Maybe 12? And he was already outclassing the religious people of the day. Do you think for a moment he didn't teach his younger siblings? He definitely taught his brothers. He definitely taught his siblings. Parents can teach and children can learn. And the preacher in the church, and here is a remarkable responsibility. I just have to move it so I can see it. We see the example Ezra reading the law before all the people. Reads it from early in the morning until about midday, about noontime. We call it lunchtime in America. That man is in the position of a preacher. And the church is essentially gathered. We are told of several people. All of the names that are hard to pronounce, those are the elders. They are all gathered for a common purpose. They are gathered as the church. And what do the Levites do? They help the people understand. They help the people understand because if you have a base level of understanding, you will excel. The higher the base level of understanding, the higher you will excel. Look at America. We started off more literate than the countries we come from. That's wonderful. And we smoke them in history. Industry, commerce, you name it. And then, of course, the Bible way. Now, what I showed before is no different than the Bible way. But to put them together, if you're going to help yourself, how do you do it? If you're going to help someone else, how do you do it? This is how. The Bible way is to know. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. You can read and hear the Word. If you're blind, respectfully. You can read and hear the Word of God. And once you hear the Word of God, you ought to think on them. Reflect, research even. If you don't know what something means, you can either use other scriptures to discern it, you can use a concordance or a lexicon, you can go online and search, or you can talk to somebody you know who is knowledgeable. But do research. Think on it. The more you think on something as you understand it and appreciate it, it will actually help you one day. 
And the response, we can hear the word of God, we can think on it. The Israelites heard the word of God. They heard literally the law of Moses, and they broke down in tears. Do you remember the time you were confronted with your own sins? How moving it was? You did something with it, didn't you? Were you not baptized? When we respond to the word of God, there are several things we can do. We can simply obey, which is the most important part. But we can do and do not. Sometimes knowing the word of God means you actually don't do something. For example, we've been studying in the parables and we've had some really good lessons, but when they ask the Lord, shall we tear up the tares? And the response from the Lord is no, because you're going to dig up some of the wheat with it and it will be greater harm than if you left them alone. The Bible way. Biblical literacy will produce biblical outcomes. So how do you react to the Word of God? There are three core components of the Word of God. There's knowledge and understanding, and there's wisdom. And they're inseparable when you think of it. A good friend of ours who preaches once in a while here, I'm sure you know who he is, he'll often point out that knowledge can puff up, and it can. The Pharisees were quite arrogant. They had a lot of biblical knowledge. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, is it not? You might say, well, my translation might say wisdom. My translation might say understanding. They're all related. You see, to know something and to act on knowing something and then to demonstrate how you relate that is all three examples here. Knowledge is knowing a fact. Understanding is the relationship between distributing that fact. Wisdom is showing you know how to correctly apply the knowledge in a given circumstance. Now that sounds really philosophical and maybe a little bit more complex, but if God wants to impart wisdom on you, you're going to have knowledge and understanding that go with it. In James, we read clearly, if anybody lacks, let him ask God, and it shall be granted. That's a description on asking God for wisdom. Do you think God is just going to just dump all the word into your head instantly? It doesn't work like that. Look at some of the famous people in the Old Testament. Look at Jonah. I know I pick on Jonah because we have a Jonah here, but he was very knowledgeable in the Word of God. He knew that outsiders shouldn't receive the Word of God, but he fought with God. The fighting actually produced a good outcome in several factors. It helped him grow as an individual and realize what God's expectations ultimately were. But also it helped the people hear the Word of God and respond accordingly. And so when you think of all of this together and you think of how we got to where we are today, Biblical literacy is important. America is in the position it is today, for better or worse, because of biblical literacy. If you want to teach somebody in life, the first thing you probably should teach them is from the Bible. And you will either do it directly or indirectly. Directly means you open up the scriptures and you read together with them. Indirectly is showing your life as a Christian would. And that's precisely what Jesus did. Whether he was an infant, teaching his mother Mary, some of us might think that's back-talking his mother when he goes to the temple. He says, do you not know I must be in my father's house? Poor Mary, I wonder what she thought of, but she always took it to heart. But whether you show by example or you open up the scriptures, Jesus again would stand in the synagogues and say, today this is being fulfilled in your ears. That you know that these words testify about me, the Lord says. He does that to help people. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live your life and then Jesus sort of shows up? And that sort of wraps up our lesson today. If you're not a Christian and you would like to become one, or you're struggling with something in life, or you would like to understand more what it means to be pursuing God and how to follow God, we have every opportunity to help you. It's not just us to stand here before you. All of us can help each other. If you're not a Christian today and you'd like to repent of your sins, the waters of baptism are ready. With that, let us stand together and sing.